Well, good morning. Thank you. <laughs> we, uh, the past uh, few weeks, have been in this series uh, on David, on the life of David, the great king from the Old Testament. And we've been looking through this because we said even though David was this king and this warrior, uh, that um, you know, we may not be able to relate to those things, but there's so much about David that we can relate to because of just what he faced in life. It's so similar to what so many of us uh, will, will face in life. And today we're going to talk about a topic that is um, kind of a difficult one to talk about. And um, I'm going to approach it a little differently maybe than uh, I normally would, but uh, I think that's just kind of the way that the topic lays itself out here. But I want to have you think about something for just a second here. Uh, I want you to think about what's been one of the most difficult conversations you've had to have with someone. I'm going to give that a minute to set in just, to, just a little bit here. What's one of the most difficult conversations that you have had to have with someone? We've got so many different like buckets that could fall into, right? Like maybe it's a boss-employee type of, of conversation. Maybe you've been a boss or uh, you know, you've been a manager of a place and you have to have a conversation with an employee and you aren't looking forward to that conversation. You know, it's, it's not going to go well. Or maybe it's the other way around. It's you're the employee going to your boss because you are got a better job offer and you want to see if they'll match it and you're just nervous about it. Maybe it's uh, a neighbor talking with the neighbor because you've got issues, and, and it just escalates, and eventually you're going to have to have a conversation to sit down and, and, and hash that out. Maybe, it's, uh, maybe you've got kids, and it's like their friend's parents you have to have a conversation with at some point. Maybe it's with your kids. Your kids become teenagers, and they're rebellious. Some of you have been there. Some of you are, uh, for me, that's <laughs> coming up here in a few years, I'm sure. You know, those conversations that you're going to have to have, or maybe it's, it's a marriage. Those conversations are going to have to come up from time to time. Confrontation is never pleasant. It's not something that most of us look forward to, but I would say in any relationship whatsoever, it's inevitable. It's going to happen to some level, uh, to some degree at some level. Uh, David, if you recall, last week Matt talked about uh, 2 Samuel 11. We're going to be in 2 Samuel because we're going to camp out today, uh, chapter 12 eventually. But last week he talked about chapter 11, one of the more famous stories we read about in Scripture. And David, who has been the king of Israel for a while now and has, has led their armies into all these great battles and victories, decides to stay home this time and gets himself into trouble. And, and Matt talked about this last week, how, uh, you know the story, he sees Bathsheba and desires her. So he goes and gets her and, and, and has an affair with her, and she gets pregnant. The problem is her husband is off fighting that war. David didn't go off and fight. So David tries to fix the situation and, and bring her husband Uriah home, but Uriah won't sleep with her. So it's becoming very obvious that he's not going to be the father of this child. So David does the next best thing, I guess, in his mind. He just decides, we'll just have Uriah killed, and that'll fix the situation. One problem leads to another, and it escalates, and it escalates. And after this all takes place, it says at the very last line of chapter 11, 
The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, we'll jump ahead to chapter 12. I don't have this on the screen. I'm just going to read this to you. But 2 Samuel chapter 12 starts like this. The Lord sent Nathan. That's the new prophet for Israel. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this uh, must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Verse 7, it says, Then Nathan said to David, You are this man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms, I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. That's a fun conversation, right? <laughs> Imagine Nathan being a fairly new prophet going to King David and having this conversation. Now, I want to kind of establish something here before I kind of get going into this today. We're we're talking about confrontation, but specifically we're talking about biblical confrontation. I I mentioned a few minutes ago things like an argument in a marriage or an issue with one of your kids. or Those are all confrontations that we come across from time to time, often because somebody's upset us or we've upset somebody else or we're at odds or, or whatever the case may be. We're talking today more about correcting each other as Christians. Uh, There's a time and a place for this, and it's something we don't like to do anymore because we don't want to be seen as being judgmental or being uh, pointing a finger at other people. So I want you to, to hear me on this today because we're called to do this. Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. So we're called to do this. But I want you to understand the purpose of this is not to condemn one another. The purpose of of Christian judgment with each other, it's never to push down or knock down, it's to build back up. It's never to point a finger and laugh and say, can you believe what so-and-so is doing? It's to restore and help get that person back on track on their walk with God. And what I think we run across often is we just don't know how to do that. We don't know how to properly approach that. And so what I want to do today is just answer two questions. And I'm going to do that the best way I know how with an efficient bullet-pointed list. 
we're going to answer two questions to consider when it comes to biblical, godly confrontation. Here's the first question, how do I do it? How do I confront someone effectively and in a godly, loving fashion? Number one is this, you speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. One of my favorite stories in the Bible comes from John chapter 8. It's a story that if your Bible's like mine, it's kind of bracketed off because it wasn't in the original manuscripts of John. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means somebody else wrote it in later. But I love the story because we see, I think, a, one of the best pictures of who Jesus is. The story goes like this. There's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. They never talk about the man who's caught in the act of adultery, but the woman's caught in the act of adultery, so they drag her out and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. I'm assuming she's come right from the action. So she's naked, she's full of shame, and they bring her and throw her at Jesus' feet and say, the law says we need to stone her to death. What should we do? They're trying to trap him. Are you going to follow the law or are you going to let her go? And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. The law says you can stone her. But whichever one of you hasn't sinned, you, you go first. And one by one, they drop their rocks and walk away. And I love how this passage ends in verse 10. It says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And Jesus responded, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus does two things here. He says, you're forgiven, but also stop doing what you were doing. You see, the problem we, we find is there's this balance between grace and truth. And on one hand, you've got grace, which is forgiving and flowing and free. And the other side, you've got truth, which is justice, and it's right and wrong. And love exists in the tension between those two. Like if you pull the rubber band tight, that rubber band is not effective if one side lets go. Okay? But the problem I think too many of us in, in our churches have gotten into is that we tend to swing too far one way or the other. On the one side, you've got churches that are all about grace, and they become too liberal in their theology, and, and they just let anything go to the point where they'll even like change the context and twist the context around Scripture to make it justify whatever lifestyle choices they want to make or whatever they want to do with their lives. On the other side, you've got too much truth, and churches become legalistic, and it's about following the rules more so than it is about actually a restored relationship with God. That's actually the problem Jesus ran into in his day was he was fighting people who were worshiping the rules over the God those rules were there to serve. And again, we want to find that tension, that, that balance in the middle of grace and truth. Jesus showed both right there in that, that verse. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Walk away from your sin and go. Here's the second thing I think we need to do to confront someone effectively. You've got to use the right timing. The right timing. This was a hard one, and, and I can't tell you what the timing is. It's going to be different in every situation. Most scholars agree that the timing between 2 Samuel 11 and 12 is about a year. In other words, Nathan didn't go as soon as the report came back that Uriah was dead. He didn't go as soon as the report came back that David had done these things. He let the dust settle. 
fact, it says that Bathsheba had had the son by then. That's at least nine months, plus a little bit longer. Let the dust settle. Timing is difficult because I think if we're too fast in confronting somebody, sometimes we get caught up in the heat of the moment. Or sometimes we catch a moment that's too raw to be talked about right then and there. On the flip side, if we wait too long, then it's kind of calloused over, or maybe somebody's forgotten about it and moved on. And, and I think there's a difficulty when it comes especially to correcting somebody who's stepping maybe a little bit away from the faith. I think there's a difficulty in knowing exactly when to approach that person. See, I look at it this way. I, I think for a lot of Christians, the devil doesn't attack us head on with a full frontal assault. He chips away and just tries to steer your focus one or two degrees off center. Because for a long time, you're walking and you don't realize how far you're drifting away until suddenly you're quite a ways away. And I think that's where we've got to work with our timing. We've got to trust God in these, these moments. Here's the third way I think we can confront somebody effectively. You've got to use the right words. You may say, well, that's obvious. <laughs> use the right words. And this is, again, why I think the timing is important. If you're like me, when I get in the heat of the moment, I lose the ability to say what I want to say. Uh, I, I can think of a few times where uh, even my wife and I, we, we've had an argument, and, and I get heated, and I fire something back, and that was not what I meant to say that came out of my mouth, but I said it. And I can't, as, as my grandpa used to say, put that toothpaste back in the tube. She's heard it. The words are there, and the words are hanging there, and then suddenly I'm backpedaling trying to fix it. Take a breath. Take a step back. This is where it's important to pray. Pray for wisdom on timing, but pray for wisdom on words. If you're able to step back and give it a moment to breathe or give it some time to breathe, you'll start thinking more logically and rationally as God guides your steps and guides your thoughts and as he guides your heart. Along the same lines as number three, number four, your tone matters. You got to use the right tone. Speaking the truth won't help you if you're overly aggressive or hateful or intimidating in the way you say it. It's called tact, learning to speak in a helpful way. Again, I, I gave you this verse a little bit ago, but Galatians chapter 6. Paul tells us, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Gently. See, here's the problem. I think using the wrong tone can cause someone to tune out. If you're harsh with them, it doesn't matter what you say, they're going to tune it out, and they might even tune you out and turn you off. Our most recent president was guilty of this. How many times did he say something that might have been true, but his tone was so aggressive that it turned people away? They wanted nothing to do with it and moved on. On the flip side, somebody might say something to you with the right tone. They can bring a harsh truth to you, and you're willing to accept that. But here's the thing we have to remember. It's not what I say. It's how you hear it. And it's not what you say. It's how I hear it. Go back just a moment ago, kind of illustrate this. I made a comment about the way that President Trump said things. Some of you probably got upset about that. Some of you were probably like, yeah, absolutely. Listen, if that made you mad, I'm out of here in two weeks. Don't email me. 
I'm not going to check it anyway, so I'll respond to you, so you can send it to Jeff. <laughs> but your tone matters. We understand this because we've all been there where somebody said something to us and we didn't even listen to what they had to say because of the way it was approached. And on the flip side, I think we've, we've all had somebody speak into our lives that could just tell us something that we needed to hear, no matter how harsh it was because they just knew how to tap into us. And here's number five on how, to, how can we uh, confront effectively. You've got to have courage. Confrontation is never easy. Uh, and I think it's never easy because if you're like me, whenever I'm going into a situation where I have to confront somebody, I start playing out every possible scenario of how this could go. And especially if I'm going to go call somebody on their sin, I'm running through my head going, well, they're going to point the finger back at me and say, well, what about all these things you've done wrong? Like, well, you know, no, 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 we're talking about you right now. <laughs> no, it takes courage. It takes boldness. And again, this is why it's so important to bathe these moments in prayer, to take them to God first, and to ask for wisdom and guidance on how you can approach somebody else. So here's the second question then. If we want to know how can we do it effectively, here's the second question I think that's important. How do we know if it accomplished its purpose? How do we know if, if a confrontation was successful, I guess? But how, how, was, it, was it biblical? Was it godly? How do we know? Well, here's number one. There will be an admission of sin. Now, there may not immediately be an admission of sin, but if you approach somebody and it's successful and, and, and God is able to tap into their heart, there will be. Go back to the story with Nathan and David. Nathan has just called him to the carpet here. And here's what David says, verse 13. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, Nathan may be thinking, man, that was easy. Because <laughs> some of you have been in that situation and it's, it doesn't happen that quickly. But maybe, just maybe, when you have that conversation, it's planting a seed into a heart. And if you're like me, sometimes when I'm the one that's being confronted, I'm not going to make an admission immediately because I need to sit and chew on it for a little while. And then later, I'm like, okay, I, I see what they were saying now. It's like it has to, our defense, defense mechanism has to, to come down a little bit for those words to sink in. But there will be an admission of sin. Chances are, if, if there's not, that person really wasn't willing to listen or have that conversation. Here's the second thing I think we need to, to, to think about, whether it was successful or not. There will be a desire to break away from sin. Not just admit sin, but move away from it. Proverbs 28 says this, Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Two words in this passage that really stand out. The words confess and renounce. Not just that we acknowledge we have sin, but we actually confess those sins to the Lord. And, and then we renounce them. We move away from them. Again, go back to the story in John 8. Jesus didn't tell the woman, oh, that was, that's no big deal. You know, just do better next time. No, he told her, don't do this anymore. And not only don't do this, like, go the other direction. Run away from your sin. 
It's called repentance. It's doing a 180 and turning and walking the opposite direction that you've been walking. You're either walking towards the Lord or the world. There's no in-between. And I think about this because in our lives, all of us have to make that turn at some point. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Walk away. Go to Acts 2. Uh, the, the, the men come to Peter and they say, what do we need to do to be saved? What's the very first word out of his mouth? Repent. Turn away. Turn away from your life of sin. This is why accountability, I think, is so important. Again, like I said earlier, I think a lot of us, when, when the devil tries to get at us, it's slight and it's gradual and it's just a drift. But accountability helps keep that from happening. You have somebody in your life who can be honest with you and tell you, hey, you're not doing this right. You're messing up right now. I'm telling you this because I love you. This is what we do with our kids. When our kids mess up, we correct them. Okay? Elsie um, is learning all sorts of new words and making up some new words as well, too. Like, she'll say a word that's sort of a word. Like, the other day, uh, she was talking about, um, she was calling it hyposynthesis. I don't know that word. Never heard of that word. Found out later what she was trying to say. I'm like, okay, this was the word. This was what you wanted to say. It wasn't because I was trying to make fun of her or tease her. It's because I wanted to learn. I wanted to get a bigger picture of what words mean. Uh, we, we, we correct our kids. As, as a coach, we would correct uh, players when they didn't do something right because we wanted them to learn and grow, not so we could just poke at them and say, boy, you messed up. The question was, did they have a willingness to learn and grow from somebody who didn't really know what they were doing to somebody who, who did? We have to have a willingness to break away from sin in that person, in that confrontation. Here's number three. There must be a broken and humble spirit. Now, with David, we know this is the case, and we know this is the case because we can read Psalm 51. Psalm 51, he wrote this right after this confrontation with Nathan. And in it, we see David just raw. We see David humbled and broken. In fact, he says this in verse 17, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. It's a broken and contrite heart that you, God, will not despise. Man, that's, that's powerful. Because you need to understand something. Personal change cannot happen without brokenness and humility. Because personal change can't happen unless you're willing to admit there needs to be a change. And, and I don't think that, honestly, I don't think we can fully grasp forgiveness and the grace of God unless we're willing to be humble unless we're willing to humble ourselves before him. This is David. This is a king who could have gotten anything he wanted, any wife he wanted, any palace he wanted. Basically, he probably looks at himself and thinks, I'm untouchable, until he wasn't. And it took that most powerful man in the area to get on his face before God and to admit, man, I messed up. And I'm broken. And God, please, please bring me back to you. Because he says that too. Number four is that there's going to be a willingness to be restored. Verse 12, he says, Restore me to the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Here's the thing I think we need to understand. 
There's nothing that you can do that puts you beyond God's grace. Like, there's no amount of sin you can do to put you beyond the grace of God. I mean, look at David here. I've done some pretty bad things in my life. I have never had an affair on my wife, gotten a woman pregnant, and committed murder to cover it all up. And yet, David's a man after God's own heart. And I think about this, because the Bible says there's one sin that's not forgivable, and it's the sin of apathy. And if you're sitting there thinking, man, I hope I haven't committed that one, you haven't, because you won't care if you have. Like, you're not even considering Christ if, 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 if that's you. So if you're looking at the list of things in your life going, but look how bad this is. How can God possibly restore me? How can I possibly break away from this? Man, there's some people in the Bible who have outdone you, I can promise you. And we look at them, we read their words, we preach their words, we study their words today. Nobody is beyond the grace of Jesus. Nobody. And we need to learn something important from this story. Because not every confrontation you have is going to go as smoothly as Nathan's and David's did. Nathan calls David out and David goes, you're right, I've sinned. God forgive me. It doesn't normally go that easily. You need to understand that. You might have a conversation with somebody and that person just completely shuts you out. All you can do is give it to God. And again, you need to remember this too. Every one of us has somebody who is quick to give us input or thoughts that we tune out because certain voices just don't hit our ears. And your voice may be that to somebody else. And you have to be okay with that. That's where prayer, again, is so important. doesn't mean not to, to boldly go and have those conversations. But it means that maybe, just maybe, your job is just to, just to plant the seed. And somebody else will come along and water, and somebody else will come along and, and prune, and somebody else will come along and harvest. The important thing is that that heart gets opened back up to God. But here's what we need to remember, too. Before we do any of this, before we do any of this, the most important confrontation you can have is between you and God. Again, go back to what I just said a few minutes ago. All of us have sinned. All of us have it in our lives, and God will forgive it. First John chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It starts with us starts with us. We need to talk with God. We need to get ourselves right with God and then pray for wisdom. Jesus said one of the reasons that he came was to seek and save the lost. And I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're a, a Christian who has wandered away. Maybe you've left the faith. Maybe you are a Christian who's drifting or maybe you know somebody who is. Maybe you're in the room watching online and you're not even a Christian yet. Except I haven't made that decision. 
here's the thing we need to remember as a church. If the lost matter to Jesus, they have to matter to us. If the, the, the one who has wandered away from the 99 mattered to Jesus, has to matter to us. James chapter 5 says, Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Confrontation is never, ever fun. It, it can cause anxiety before it happens. It can cause hurt after it's happened. And we need to be wise in how we approach this. So I'm going to give you two takeaways for this today. Two-step takeaway on how we can do this. Here's the first one. You confront yourself first. Before you go after somebody else, even in the name of God with the Bible in your hand and, and God on your heart, you, you confront yourself first. Matthew chapter 7 said earlier that we don't like to come off as being judgmental at times because we read Matthew 7 where it says, don't judge or you too will be judged. And for a lot of people, that's enough of that chapter. That's all they read is that one line. You, you kind of forget that it goes on. It says this in verse 3, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's. Notice it doesn't say to not remove the speck from your brother's eye. It gets to that. Matthew 7 is kind of like this. Before you pick up a magnifying glass to examine the sins of somebody else, look in the mirror and check yourself. Talk to God. Confront yourself first. But number two is this. When you confront somebody else, pray for wisdom. I look at it like this. If, if somebody is in sin and they're venturing off the path or wandering away, a confrontation can typically go one of two ways. You can turn that person around or turn them away. Your words matter. Your tone matters. Your heart matters. Folks, I probably not the best in the world at, at giving advice on confrontation. It makes me sick to my stomach at times. Anxiety creeps in, nerves and stress. Like I said, I, I go through my head with every possible scenario of what kind of response I might get. But it's necessary. So pray for wisdom and guidance that God would guide your words, guide your thoughts, guide your heart through all of it. Let's pray. Father, we we're just so thankful for Jesus who continues to show us, Lord, how to live like you. God, that he gives us instructions that are just as meaningful to us today as they were 2,000 years ago. God, that we can look and see the story of someone like David or Nathan and we can continue to learn from that today. God, today, wherever somebody's at, if a confrontation is needed, if a conversation is needed, Lord. God, let's make that about you. About you, Lord. And about the heart of that person. God, that it wouldn't be something out of spite. It wouldn't be something that comes off as hateful in tone. But God, it would be out of love. God, just like a, a brother talks to a brother or a, a father talks to a son. God, I pray for hearts to be opened and receptive to hearing from you. 
God, the hearts wouldn't be turned away. But Lord, we would always have a desire to find that lost person, to find that lost sheep. We're so thankful for Jesus. God, we pray in his name.